So, hello everybody. This is episode three of Safe Space. This is a very international and uh, multimedia and virtual one because Robert and I are actually in different locations and are using uh, this new, very new tool just uh, recently launched called Skype um, to keep in touch and communicate while we record on both ends and then somebody being me will bring the whole thing together. So we hope it's going to work. Yep. Yep. So what happened meanwhile with you? Um, well, I came here, I'm in England and surprisingly enough, it's not raining today. I'm, um, I'm as close to Hogwarts <laughs> as humanly possible, <laughs> I think. I'm in an English public school called Haleybury, where we are, where there's a Buddhist retreat happening. And basically, if you have read Harry Potter, you have a pretty good idea of your surroundings here. All the things about English schools, which are mentioned in Harry Potter, absolutely true. Do they play this that weird game too? No, there's no Quidditch. That's the only thing that doesn't happen, but there's photos of the different houses playing against each other and the house masters and the prefects. And there's even a, I just saw there's a poster on the wall kind of what disciplinary measures a prefect in the house can actually deal out. So Physical? I didn't look into exactly what what's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> How is a retreat uh, work? I mean, how is that different from what, what we know in terms of, you know, being basically alone somewhere and doing practice and meditate? How does a retreat in awkward, no, awkward, <laughs> awkward work, <laughs> Oxford, how does it look like? Well, it's not a practice retreat. I mean, we generally call it a teaching retreat. So it's actually a retreat mm -hmm. which is focused on receiving teachings and contemplating um, the teachings together, I would say. So it's, you, you learn things, then, then you might later decide to practice. Mm. I mean, one thing that is in common with a personal retreat is you have a very st strict schedule, especially here because the kitchen doesn't allow us to deviate from the schedule, otherwise we don't get lunch. So there's a strict schedule, there's, there is... Proper sessions and tea breaks in between, of course. Tea breaks with cookies mm -hmm. and lunch breaks and evenings. And <clears throat> of course, ideally, you you would cut yourself off from your normal daily activities, like recording podcasts or checking your Twitter. Uh -huh. But you're there also, you're supporting the retreat, right? You're not just a student going there to, to learn more stuff. Uh, you're helping to make that thing happen, right? Yeah, I'm sitting at the sound desk and try to screw up mm. as much as possible, humanly possible. So what's the score for now? So far, I haven't managed really anything badly oh, Wow. Yet. Well done. Do we have any FUs? Um, I didn't get anything. People are complaining that our podcast is too long. So we might just... Okay, so let's stop. So, yeah. <laughs> Five minutes. Okay. <laughs> let's talk again next week. No, okay, we'll do our best to keep it within uh, maybe 45. Something yeah, like something that. like 40, that. 45? Okay, yeah. that's good.
Did I say something like last time that uh, I think I, I might have said something like uh, the the Buddha was kind of an ex extremist or uh, or something like that or it was um, what did I say? I was expecting a few people at least to react to that, but obviously uh, they didn't. Well, maybe just nobody listened to us. Yeah. No, I know that at least a few people listened to to it. So. Oh, that's that's good. I think I must have said something about his attitude toward happiness is quite uh, is quite specific. Uh, what I want meant to say is actually, you know, it, it's just um, it's really interesting to read his uh, life, uh, uh, the, the, the recounts of his life. Um, uh, there's a very nice book from Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, what is it? Old Cloud, New Path, something like that. Old path, other way around, I think. Old path, new cloud. Other way around, old path, new. Yeah, and it's um, really kind of this quest for for happiness and and for something really reliable. And in that sense, I think he's quite determined, and he he wouldn't let go until he found. You know, he started by being pretty rich and pretty well off, and a very, <laughs> a very especially for for those days, a very comfortable life. And he quickly kind of saw that that doesn't really. Uh, is not reliable and then he got pretty quickly into a uh, different spiritual um, uh, techniques of meditation and he found them to be also lacking this sense of definitive uh, definitive happiness and so that why he came up with his own system and he found uh, what he was looking for and then he talked about it but this week I understand you want to talk about something different um We're going to come kind of circle back to where you started. Um, I was actually thinking about a topic which came up while I watched the movie. And actually it all started, I watched the presentation of Apple's new iPad, mm. which um, kind of nice device. And so there's a whole, they had a whole press conference with a big presentation. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, they showed how good the iPad is at showing movies. And the excerpt they played or showed was an excerpt of this movie from last year called Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close. Now, of course, those who are listening to the podcast, um, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want Wanted to be spoiled, you better stop the podcast now, watch the movie, and then continue. Okay, stop. Go. Okay, now they're back. Okay, so now everybody has watched the movie. Mm -hmm. Good. So we can continue now and kind of... Well, you have all seen it now, so I know what... You all know what it's about. It's this mm -hmm. um, kind of slightly autistic boy in New York City who witnesses the World Trade Center being blown up by mm -hmm. the two airplanes. And his father is in one of the towers and gets killed mm -hmm. on yeah, 9-11. The worst day, he calls it, don't? The, the worst, worst day. day. So the movie describes his attempts to deal with this situation, which doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. And what he does is, he well... What happens is he finds a key in his father's closet mm -hmm. and he's tr he gets this idea in his head that if he only found the lock that this key opens, then that would actually 
explain the whole situation and would make give sense to this tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and all he knows is that the keys was in an envelope which has had written the name black on the outside of the envelope. So he's visiting all the blacks in New York City. You mean people called People black? with the last name black to figure out if one of them knows about the key. Yep. So that's basically the storyline and there's some obstacles on it. And then he also meet, meets an old man who's played by Max von Sydow. He was great on that one, my God. Which was maybe the one reason I watched the movie in the first place, because I hadn't really uh, yeah. seen much of him since The Seventh Seal. So I was curious. So so in the end, he, he does find kind of, it turns out that the key belongs to somebody else and he hands over the key to another guy who actually needs it. Let me ask you one thing there. Do you think that it was a pure coincidence that that was the first family he visited when he was looking for the black, but he talked to the wife rather than the husband, who was the guy who would have known about the key. Well, it's a movie. If the if he had talked to the to the husband instead of the wife, then the movie would have been over after ten minutes. So I don't think that was yeah, the point. Yeah, but why why did he, he why did he get it right the first time? He had like I don't know how many hundred of people to visit, and the very first was the that family. It's just storytelling. We don't know why he got there. Anyway, that was probably uh, not the main point. I mean, the movie itself has not received great critics. I mean, so it's probably not such a fantastic movie. I did like it. So, But my point was that his mother follows him along as well. And his mother is actually even more grief-stricken than he is, than her son. Yes. And... In the end, well, in the end, you learn that his mother followed him, number one. But you also learn that the fact that she met so many people on the way who were equally impacted by 9-11, who had lost somebody they loved, that actually consoles her in some way and in the end makes her open up to her son again. So that was the part I found interesting. Because it reminded you of? Because it reminded me of something. Because if you read Sorian Butch's book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, in probably chapter three, I don't know, there's a story, which now we come back to Buddha. So in Buddha's lifetime, there was a son who yeah. came to, to the Buddha. She had lost her child and she mm. hadn't buried her child yet. And she brought it to Buddha and said, bring it back to life. And Buddha said... Well, he, he didn't say I cannot do that, but he said, well, find a house, bring me a mustard seed. So it was like a little bit, sounded like witchcraft or something. So it really fits with the Hogsworth theme here. Find a mustard seed of a house which hasn't seen any deaths in the village. So then the woman thinks, oh, that's easy. So She goes to the first house, knocks, and of course somebody died there. She goes to the second house and knocks, and they mm. also had some deaths in the family and so on. So in the end, she has been to every house in the village and realizes it, realizes that everybody has experienced death of a loved one in the, fam in the house. So then she comes back to Buddha and says, oh, I realize what you're trying to teach me. This is not just a single event that my baby died. It's, yeah, it happens to everybody and she's consoled and starts following the Buddhist teachings. 
So that's a very similar story, just a few thousand years earlier. What I found interesting is that that Buddha didn't didn't tell her kind of look, this is impermanence, this is normal, or kind of look here the four noble truths or this is mm. karma or anything like that. He didn't he didn't pretend to kind of know it any better. He just he basically, mm-hmm. I mean, it, he actually used our normal human tendencies to show her something. Which I think is a great thing about Buddhism. They always, the Buddhist teachings always pick you up where you are. They don't tell mm-hmm. you, you should already be somewhere else. I found that very interesting that you say that because um, this is, uh, I think, for me, belongs to kind of the uh, the. Um, the bigger area of, if you want, pedagogical approaches or skillful means, if you want to call it not so. Because what's the point of knowing how things are or how things works or having knowledge about something that would be really, really helpful for people if there's no way to communicate it in an effective way, meaning that really makes a difference in their life. And, you know, you know that part of, part of my job that I have these days is to kind of, in that area... And uh, I do sometimes think that the way in which, uh, you know, Buddhism is taught in sometimes here in the West uh, does not always make use of this approach that you're describing, which is the only one that really works. Um, Sometimes it looks like solutions are offered um, for problems that people haven't even uh, thought about properly. Like what, what you were saying is, look, the Buddha did it from the from the very first time. I mean, of course, when he had the you know the first five disciples, whatever, he taught the four noble truths because that's also the type of teaching that they needed. Uh, you know, a complete overview of the path and the situation how it is. But to this lady, I think it was Krishna Gotami, you know her name. Yes, and and uh, he thought to do it differently, and 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 the point was to get her to her uh, personal realization that would help her. Not only, uh, you know, how do you say, face uh, this period of grievance, but um, basically embark in a in a meaningful uh, spiritual path, which is what happened to her, according to the story. So I like that 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 you put it this way. But sometimes, um, Sometimes it doesn't help to tell, you know, to present things as if, okay, that's the truth or that's how things work and just learn it and you will see everything uh, is fine. And some some of our Western student col- colleagues, at some point in their t- trajectory of being a student, they, uh, they have that tendency of just wanting to have more and more knowledge about things that might not really be what they are f- uh, having to deal with on a daily basis. So for me, like it's interesting. After many years of of this study, uh, even I went even to Nepal to study directly, you know, from the Tibetans there, how this whole thing is supposed to work. And uh, and now I find myself in a place that um, I I need to reconcile all this kind of uh, uh, knowledge, which I wouldn't say is only theoretical. It's definitely not only theoretical knowledge. There's, uh, there's an element. Uh, that is deeper than in, in, you know just uh, intellect, uh, 
But now to, to map it back or integrate it back in my everyday reality and my psychological, if you want, uh, situation of today. Um, I mean, you could go to the other extreme that you kind of think, oh, I can just discard all of these philosophical discussions because life is different now and so on. I mean, mm. you always have to kind of try and figure out what's actually meant, not just discard it, but... I think, yeah, it's t totally important to to not give up until you have really found how something in the teachings relates to your personal experience. Yes. Um, I mean, there's a, I read this long time ago, there's this, this famous Nobel Prize winner, Richard P. Feynman, physicist. And he wrote a book called, You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman. He had quite a good humor. Hmm. And and he recounts that he attended a philosophy class at university. That when he was already a professor, but he attended somebody else's philosophy class. And well, this kind of professor was expounding some kind of philosophical concept, and Feynman kind of raised his hand and said, "Well, if I put a brick in front of you." how does that fit, fit into your philosophical concept? And the professor actually could not answer that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a sad state of affairs, obviously, because if you cannot apply the phil philosophy you're studying to your experience, yeah, then it's not really worth much. I mean, it may be, might be nice as an intellectual experiment, but not really helpful. Yeah, I want to say two things that, that about what you just said. I find uh, I found myself thinking about recently, uh, coincidentally, which is, yeah, I think patience, whatever kind of spiritual path one embarks on, patience is the main thing because um, things don't make sense at the beginning, and and. And you need to kind of chew on it for a little while bef bef before you can kind of uh, even see if it's something that is uh, for you or not for you. And another thing is um, the relationship between the philosophical aspect of all these teachings and the practical aspect. I think that these teachings, uh, you know, the, the, the Buddha Dharma, as we call it, is like they're very practical. As we, you know, they really come out of how can I be happy? How can I be happy on a, in a reliable uh, and, and stable way? Uh, and then all the steps to get there. And the philosophical aspect is the, if you want, is this the backbone for that process. Uh, if the, the happiness I'm looking for and the way to get there uh, is not coherent with uh, reality as it is, basically it's a, it becomes a, being a fantasy, what kind, of, what kind of happiness is that? I mean, it's not going to be reliable because it doesn't stand the proof of reality. So, Quite a lot of these philosophical studies are about, okay, let's try to understand how things work so that we can, you know, make the best use of circumstances. But also, let's try to find out how things actually are. And the idea is that that form of happiness that is reliable, that is stable, happens once we completely understand and embrace and fully embody the understanding of how things really are. So it's not something built on an extra theory on top of something already theoretical, but it's just a complete um, 
overlap between the way we experience uh, reality and the way reality is. Uh, nothing more than that. And the, the idea was to get, uh, to get a philosophical system that was solid enough to support the real thing, which is the practice. Because, of course, at the end of the day, the whole thing turns around and says, well, no matter how much you think about it, uh, the thinking tool of your mind is not the way to access reality as it is. So, yeah, you have to match it up with your you have to match it up with your experience. And there's something there's an aspect of the mind that can access reality, which is not the intellectual mind. is is something like wanting to see infrared with the naked eye. There's you know there's no point. Uh, nevertheless, we give we give it our best to use our intellectual mind to find out how things are. So. That was a long one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to come back to the Buddha story because so first I saw the movie and then I thought, oh, this really reminds me of this other story. And then I kept thinking, this is so weird, you know, that we as human beings just to know that somebody else suffers as much as I do makes my suffering less less depressing or less severe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really... It, it's kind of a funny mechanism, I mean, a funny psychological mechanism of how we operate. Nothing to do with schadenfreude. No, not schadenfreude. But, I mean, all of us, we have gone to teenage... We have been teenagers at some point. And, I mean, this is exactly how teenagers operate. It's always about comparing yourself to the others. Mm. and see who has more, who has less, who is happier, who has more friends. So I found it quite funny that Buddha, you know, he didn't even kind of tell her some deep insight. He basically used that super basic mechanism of our ego to kind of help that woman to find something. And actually, I think what happened is there's like two steps almost, you know, like first, she's really focusing in on her own suffering, which is understandable. Yeah. Then, okay, second step, she walks around, she finds that everybody else had the same similar suffering. So just that kind of opens up a little bit and makes her own suffering less intense, isn't it? Just to realize, oops, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that this happened to. But then actually, then there's, I think there's a second step where actually once you start kind of, um, once you start considering how this is for other people and turning your attention away from yourself and really maybe having some empathy and compassion for others who have also had a bad um, tragedy happen to them, mm-hmm. then really something happens. I think then really something opens and it's almost forgetting your own suffering because you kind of have this empathy and compassion kind of well up in yourself yeah. and like, oh, kind of focusing on, on others' happiness. Yeah, I think there are two realizations there. I mean, there is uh, the the realization of, uh, you know, impermanence and the fact that it's uh, everywhere 
And I think that goes back to what we said before. Impermanence is just how things are. There's nothing there that stays forever. So uh, to have a, to have a form of attachment of a form of kind of emotional emotional relationship to the world that doesn't take in account the fact that <laughs> whatever we are attached to is going to go, it's a problem. Yeah, originally I wanted to talk about impermanence this time, um, but then I get stuck with this kind of. Why does it relieve our own suffering if we see that somebody else is suffering as well? Well, that's the, the, that's the second element. I think so one is realizing uh, impermanence and the second is the whole area of compassion and and I would say even empathy before compassion. And there and there is something like uh, realizing that we are not alone and that that already opens up uh opens up the heart to something even deeper, which is, uh, oh my God, who's who's going to do something about all these people suffering around me? Oh, maybe I should do something about it. And then uh, that's one kind of spiritual path, if you want. Yeah, and actually, interestingly enough, in the movie, so his mother basically follows him and sees all these people who also lost somebody in 9-11. Yeah. But then... The boy actually is the one who takes it a step further because he finds that his key is actually is not going to help him at all. But it's somebody mm. else the key is going to be really helpful to. And he actually finds, finds this relief by so surrendering the key to the person who's actually, who actually needs it. So he lets go of this whole idea that I have to kind of find a solution for myself or this key is going to mm. help me. I mean, that's the. I think that's quite an amazing story. I guess there's a, there must be a very good book behind that movie, I have the feeling. <laughs> and I know there is a book, but it's kind of a homage to humanity. I think it's like... Um, uh, you know, September 11 does play a role, but it's not the main thing. And, you know, people have been trying in different ways to kind of um, uh, integrate that uh, that the common experience that, uh, that, that the world had, but especially uh, Americans and even more specifically New Yorkers, uh, to integrate that experience in, in, in their culture, in their, you know, whatever, you know, after... After the most, uh, after the first few years, where it was like a mix, a mixture of shock and uh, and uh, and uh, reactions, just like that. And I like what very nice about this movie is that it's uh, it's all about humanity. You know, there's a lot of you know people with different, even not necessarily nice people. You know, there's one lady who doesn't even want to talk to him, and uh, you discover people who are more or less sick, more or less weird, more or less open to the whole process. So it's a whole kind of homage to humanity which is the again it's exactly what you're talking about it's like you open up you see that every we are all in the same boat uh we are kind of all trying to deal with the same problems and that already opens up the the, the door to um something that later can become you know compassion and that later on can become a form of compassion that is a little bit less biased towards people we like but it's a little bit more all-encompassing, and we know then, of course, that on the Buddhist spiritual path, uh, there's a very specific place for that, and there's a way to try to uh, expand that feeling so that it becomes, uh, you know, limitless. 
do you think do you think that the, the there was an influence on the writer probably of the original book from from the Buddhist teachings or it's just happened to be it's just human stuff that people think I'm not sure I think I mean it it is kind of normal human behavior I mean Buddhism is not special human behavior that's also the thing you know it's it is addressing normal human behavior and also mm. in terms of Buddhist insights there is a lot of insights there that a lot of people have individually in their lives. Of course, in the Buddhist teachings, it's all kind of more structured and put together in a way that it it has a bigger picture and it's kind of yeah presented step by step in the right order so it all makes sense and builds on each other and so on. But in the end, all the Buddhist teachings, yeah, they are based on, on our own experience and how yeah. to deal with it and... So I think that movie showed that. Yeah, I just I I like the movie. Yeah, that was nice. Thank you for asking me to watch it uh, in preparation for this discussion. I watched it uh, uh, two days ago. I liked it. So maybe that that that's it for today. What do you think? Uh, I think so. People can uh, people who do want uh, to spend more time with us can listen to it at half speed. That's right. And then everybody else is going to be happy with it. And um, and if you have any comments, as always, kind of Twitter is the best way. I'm Robert Wickber on mm. Twitter. One word, Robert Wickber. And the website is, our website of this podcast is safespace2012.tumblr.com. And I finally got the iTunes RSS feed working, so you can now subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and you actually get all the episodes. Ooh. I have to try this out. It works finally. Excellent. You get the ISS. You get the ISS feed. It's a click. It's a button somewhere on the Safe Space 2012 Tumblr page. Mm-hmm. Well, have a nice tea then. Yes, thank you. It is really tea time now, so I'll go and get a nice cup of tea, and then we talk again in about two weeks when you're back in on the continent. When I'm back in France, and then probably. Water with a cup of coffee and a cup of tea. <laughs> see you then. Okay, see you. Bye. Bye.